Welcome to episode 264 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week, my guest is Maggie Vibo. Maggie shared her story of serving in the Army. One of the things that really stood out to me in this interview was how she found healing through writing and art. She came home from Iraq in 2004 and went to talk to someone about what she experienced, and she couldn't get the words out. But she had told the person that she liked to write, and they told her that she should use her words through writing, and she did. That advice has helped her not only to find words, but also to find community. She shared about her experience in joining the Army in 2000, highlights from her deployment in first Kuwait and then into Iraq, and then she shared about her transition out of the military after she came home. She also shared her experience of being a military spouse, which she still is today. Her husband is a Chief Warrant Officer 5 and has served for 28 years and continues to serve, and they are in Hawaii. I really hope you enjoy this interview, and I'm excited to get started. But before we get started with this week's interview, I want to remind you that Women of the Military podcast is on Reese Across America Radio on Fridays at 7 p.m. Eastern and Saturdays at 11 a.m. Eastern, and you can listen on iHeartRadio, the TuneIn app, or Odyssey. Now with that out of the way, let's get started with this week's interview. I'm really excited to have Maggie here today. We spent like 20 minutes chatting before we got the interview started, so it should be a fun interview. I'm really excited to hear her story and learn about her experience in the military. So welcome to the show, Maggie. Hi, Amanda. It's so nice to be with you here. I'm such a fan. Thanks for listening, for supporting the podcast. I really appreciate it. So let's start with why did you decide to join the military? I joined the military because we lived on a farm back in Iowa when I was a kid and the reservists used to come out and they would just spend time on our land. And I remember the sergeant used to come down and kind of just like talk to my parents. And I remember them looking up to him and there was like just this sense of pride. And I'm part of that be all you can be generation where that was the commercial that we heard all the time. And so I always thought in the back of my mind, this is something you can do if you stay fit and things like that. And I was a pretty fit kid and and I did a lot of the things that even maybe the other people couldn't do. You know, there was like this rope and gym and I remember climbing up to the top of it. And yeah, I just always thought in the back of my mind, this will be something that you could do and you could serve your country that way. There was this sense of patriotism. And so that's why I had always thought this would be something that you could do. And then I did. When did you decide to join the military? Was it right after high school? Did you wait a few years? What was that storyline? It was uh, 1999. I was actually in Australia as a nanny. And I was, you know, learning that I really liked kids and I thought I would be a teacher or something like that. And um, then I had come back and, and realized the world's such a huge place. And what are you doing with your life? And I'm about 20, almost 25 at this stage. And um, yeah, so I'm older and it's the year 2000 and Y2K has come and gone and nothing happened. The world didn't explode like they predicted it was going to. And so I just went ahead and, and did it. And I remember my family and my friends were all like, what have you done? <laughs> like, what have you done? Because I think my parents were 
very excited about the idea of the military as long as their daughter wasn't the one in it. <laughs> so the conversation was, can you get out of it? And it was like, no, I'm, I'm definitely not getting out of this. This is something I want to do. And so after I explained to them that I wanted to do this and that I'm older now and I, I still want to go to school and I still want to see the world and I still have these ideas in my head, they were more on board with it. So I just remember them um, actually taking me to the airport and we were such a farm family um, that I remember my sister had this big jar of like pickles that my dad had made. And she's like, you might as well eat this. Who knows when you're going to get good food again? And and we were all laughing and cracking up. And this was pre 9-11. So they walked me right up to the gate. I mean, can you imagine liquids at the airport now in a big jar? You know, <laughs> we're just eating them and, and laughing. And, and it was just a really memorable, like in my, in my memory, that is one of those moments where I go, it was really cool that my family stood by me and somebody was there to take the photograph of me raising my right hand. And, and there was a cake involved and my grandma was there. And there were just these really good memories of me um, going off to basic training. And then I got to basic training in May, um, I want to say, right around there, May, June, something like that. And I just remember it was so hot in Fort Jackson, South Carolina. It was just really, really hot. The heat exhaustion, the drink water thing, but the basic training part of it, the part that everybody said, you know, you're not going to make it, you know, just going to be so hard on you. And I grew up with Irish dad, you know, so it was just like, okay, these guys are Irish, you know, they're yelling a lot and <laughs> they're just, you know what I'm saying? Like, it just didn't feel real to me. It didn't feel like I should be intimidated. So, and because I was much older and probably more confident, and obviously you can tell I don't have a problem with talking. I ended up being that person who, instead of blending in, was asking all the questions. And so kind of made a reputation for myself of being the one that asked a lot of questions. Went through basic training, introduction to like different people. And since I had grown up in Iowa, it was just so much diversity and the communal living. I remember like the showering situation, all that was just, you know, that was probably harder to deal with than even like dealing with drill sergeants or dealing with all of that that's going on with the training and, and the weapons qualification, all of that. It was just like, okay, you have to learn to be in a space with lots of people. And I had grown up in a, in a place where I was basically by myself in the wilderness, you know, going to different barns and traveling throughout the countryside and stuff like that. Not the hills are alive with the sound of music kind of thing, but I mean, it was still, you know, like it was just a different space and time for me. So I remember that was a little bit like, okay, I, I can get used to this. I can do this. But I had to also remember that even though I think I know everything at this age, I know nothing, right? So they, they teach you really quickly that you don't know anything. And you might have lived beforehand, but you haven't lived with the military culture. So that was something that I had to experience and, you know, kind of get knocked down a few pegs to get built back up. And then it was AIT, right? So my advanced individual training was to be in supply, so logistics. So I traveled to what's Fort Gregg Adams now, and we did our training there. 
And I just remember spider bites and having an allergic reaction. I remember passing out um, from the heat exhaustion. Um, I remember that I did incredibly well at land navigation, which anybody that knows me knows that that should have never happened. I should have never done well at land navigation for a lot of different reasons. And so I just ended up doing a lot better in the military than I thought I was going to do because also I have this OCD, which, you know, dress right dress. I don't have an issue with that, you know, like cleaning up things and keeping things tidy and organized. That all seemed really logical to me. So that part of it, you want to tell me what to do? That's fine. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to be the one that does the planning. I have no problems following people and following directions. I do ask a lot of questions, but I do feel like some people are probably more adaptable in that way. So yeah, AIT was okay too. That's really interesting to hear your story. I'm reading Military Culture Shift, which this, the episode of Military Culture Shift came out two weeks ago. Corey Weathers wrote a book called Military Culture Shift. So far what I'm reading is like how the generations are affected by like when they join and life experience. And I'm an older millennial and just barely missed Gen X. And you're a Gen Xer. I know that now because I'm reading her book and I know like I've learned so much about the different generations. And it's interesting to hear you talk about like asking questions and like how that is part of like one of the things that the Gen X and millennials even more so like started to do based on different things so it's interesting to hear that come up over and over and anyways you should go back and listen to that episode if you haven't it's interesting to hear like what drove you to join the military and um, especially after reading her book and like knowing more about like the generations I think that's what is so fascinating and just your personality of asking questions am I lining up then with my generation well we got to keep talking to learn more but I think I mean (laughs) You're a Gen Xer. You joined the military right before September 11th, and then September 11th like really shaped your experience in the military. And then what was interesting to learn about the Generation X because I joined in I went active duty in 2007, so that was like at the tail end of like the money was starting to get drawn down, the military was changing, and there was this huge culture shift from like 2007 to 2013, and so. It'll be interesting to hear your perspective because you were in those years that I wasn't in and why that change was so dramatic on people who serve for the whole duration. And then even for me as a service member, I really I really related a lot to it was funny. It was like the Gen X chapter. And I was like, oh, I relate to all that. And then it was like the millennial. And I was like, that's not my childhood. That was kind of interesting. Yeah. Drinking out of the hose, all that stuff. Be home before the lights come on outside. That was our generation. Yeah. Do you know where your children are at? And I remember like watching all the shows that my dad said I wasn't allowed to watch and I would do it anyway. And yeah, I mean, we definitely had a lot of freedom. We we rode our bicycle places that our, if our parents had known, I mean, it wasn't even in the same town, sometimes not the same city. I mean, we as far as that bicycle could take you is how far you went. And then I remember when the car came in, oh, forget about it. Like, we just, we were raising ourselves, I think. So a lot of fun times. Yeah, it's it's crazy. So you went to AIT to be supply troop, and then you got to your first assignment. When did you finish, like, basic and AIT 
and get to your first assignment? So the whole summer, and I just remember being heat exhausted. Um, <laughs> everything was much hotter than I was used to, much more humid. And so my first duty station, I arrived there at the end of summer. So it was like, it was actually October 31st. So I'm there at Fort Bliss, Texas. And it's the first time I've ever been in the desert. It's the farthest west I've I mean, aside from one time I went to California when I was a kid, but aside from that, it had been the farthest west I had ever gone, farthest south I had ever gone, and I knew nothing about Texas or Texan way of life or anything like that. So, and then to hear the word Fort Bliss, I was like, well, as a poet, you know, I'm like, that's got to be great. And I remember saying that out loud when I, you know, got my assignment, I was like, that's got to be great. It's in the name. And everybody's just cracking up. They're like, ah, you've got some good jokes, you know. So I got there uh, October 31st, and I was at the headquarters and headquarters battery. Um, so HHB 108th, and it was Air Defense Artillery Brigade, so ADA. At, at that time, they were attached to the 18th Airborne Corps. So I don't believe that they are now. I think the Airborne Corps is in a whole different state um, altogether. And then because we were attached to an 18th Airborne Corps, there was just a lot of running and we wore the beret, even though I hadn't, you know, I hadn't jumped out of an airplane, a perfectly good airplane. Um, I still wore the beret um, when those were issued. But initially, yeah, it was like the garrison cap or whatever. And I just remember running and running and running. And in the desert, and I had trained in the south, so I was getting used to the heat and all of this. Then I get to the desert where it's a dry heat and I'm out there just hauling. For like the first quarter mile, I am hauling. And then all of a sudden it catches up to me and I'm like, what is this infernal? Like I couldn't breathe. And then people are just flying. By. Great job, new girl. And, you know, like making jokes and stuff because I was just like, yeah, man, I got this. I'm going to set off the right impression and everything. And and I so didn't. <laughs> it took a long time to get acclimated to that, to that whole, that whole area. And then eventually I did, and I, you know, was still able to run, still able to do the things that you have to do to be in an airborne unit without jumping. So still look kind of cool and then not have to do all of the dangerous stuff, basically. So you were a supply troop in an airborne unit? Yeah, but I was a supply, uh, well, when I came, I was a private, right? Um, and for some reason... And maybe because of my personality, I don't know, to be honest, they put me in the S4 shop. So I am there with a bunch of higher enlisted and officers in a supply supposedly job. So I have an impact credit card, which government purchasing credit card. My job becomes reports of survey for anybody that doesn't know what that is. It's like the damage, the broken, the lost um, gear. There's a whole investigation that takes place and you have to look through it at the time. And it might even still be AR 735-5, which how I remember that after 20 years is telling you how much I was looking in this thing. The army regulations and just reading over all of the things that the people would say about how the, the item was lost how the item was destroyed, how, you know, NVGs or whatever come up missing, things like that. And you're just basically, it's like a little soap opera where, you know, for me, I'm looking at it going, yeah, right, come on, whatever. But then this person says this and this person says that. And I'm supposed to, I'm like, none of this is going to fly. But, you know, you write a recommendation to the, to the commander. And I did that. And I 
I've always loved writing. So it was, for me, it was natural. And that legal sense was kind of fun. It was, you know, like this whole legal saga that's going on. And I get to write up a recommendation, which why anybody would listen to a private, I don't know, but they did. And, and so I, I guess, cause I could write. And so I'm writing and, and sending that in and e- the, the person's either going to be charged one month's salary essentially, or, or they're going to find that there was too much stuff going on at the time and we're just going to write this off. And so that was predominantly my job aside from purchasing things, which meant I didn't have to go into a supply room, which meant that I could still be kind of mouthy and kind of like this, you know, (laughs) talkative, chatty person and not really learn a lot about military, I guess, discipline in in that sense where I should have been learning that. I should have been learning some really important lessons and I really just wasn't. I was already older and I was already, you know, this person from Iowa that apparently is is very um, chatty and, and says a lot. So I also remember like when I met my, who would become my future spouse, he was infantry, prior infantry. He was younger and he was absolutely gorgeous. But I just remember him because he had been 25, 25th ID, just thinking this, this person's got all of it together. Like as far as the military seems like he's light years ahead of me, truly. Like just what even is this military that he's a part of? Because it's definitely different from my experience. And I remember people saying, you really shouldn't be at the Brigade S4, but you're doing your job really well. So they're keeping you there, but you really should be in your unit learning things about the supply room and about, you know, what your job is. My job became a lot of other things. And, and so that was an interesting thing. And then I met this really gorgeous person. He had a very long last name for anybody listening. It's Vibul Sitiseri. It got shortened down to Vibo, but on my Humvee, I made sure to put all the letters across the windshield because I was so proud to go from Kelly, this Irish girl, um, to Vibul Sitiseri because I just sounded like such a poetic name. And I was like, this is a really cool name. And we got married August 31st, 2001, and we traveled to... California on a four-day pass. Some people from the S4 made us a cake or we wouldn't have had a wedding cake. His sister showed up to the beach where we decided to get married from this person we met on the internet who had a wedding license. And and she brought the flowers where I wouldn't have had a bouquet. I got my dress off of like a, a Dillard's shopping rack or something like that and had it altered. And, and it was this flapper girl dress. And I don't think I have felt more happy and more in peace than that day. It wasn't about anybody else but us. And we set our vows on the beach in Malibu and just had a wonderful, a wonderful time. And then we thought, well, we'll have our honeymoon later. We'll ask for more time. We'll get some vacation and we'll have our honeymoon. So if you're tracking the dates right now, it's right before 9-11. So that didn't happen. Something else uh, happened. And so everything changed, as you know, Amanda, and as a lot of the listeners will know, everything changed on that day. It was interesting. You were like, and August 31st, 2001, I'm like, oh, we know what happens in 11 days after that. The military, the world, everything changed. And you're starting like a new life with your spouse and thinking because you didn't know, like you were at peace and everything, you know, there were deployments here and there, but it wasn't anything like what was about to come so yeah so tell us more about the story of what happened so you guys just had a four-day pass so you were already back at the unit working 
and planning to do another trip, but still trying to figure out when you were going to do that. And then September 11th happened. And he was infantry still? No, he had, I met him after he was infantry. Um, So he's also a logistician at this point, um, but he works for, I think it's called the FDC, which I think is Fire Direction, Fire Detention Center, something like that. And so different lineup of jobs and things like that. But I can still sense, even though this person's in logistics, their their experiences are completely (laughs) different from like the culture wise and all of that. Like his entire demeanor was completely different from mine and and it was exciting and he was exciting to me and I I just that time of our lives being so young and and just carefree and had grown up with so many freedoms as a Gen Xer and had always heard about these these other Gulf War experiences and had heard about Vietnam and had watched all the movies and we knew that something could happen. But then we had, you know, this recruiter that's telling you, you'll always be in the rear. You'll never see the front lines. You'll never experience anything because you're going to be a logistician. You're going to be a 92 Yankee and those guys have it great. You know, they might deliver your, your, your goods, you're everybody's friend. They want to keep you their friend because they want the stuff and you're able to give them the stuff. So Um, He just sold it and I took it all like hook, line and sinker. You know, I had wanted to go in and be like somebody that more the reporters, the journalists and things like that. What is it? it? PA. And so I had always thought that would be what I would end up doing. But, you know, they dangle the carrots, whatever the um, (laughs) different contracts that you're um, that are available to you. And so I was like, well, that that money sure looked really good for somebody in their 20s, you know, somebody that's just starting out life, that money, and who knows what we even spent that on, right? I mean, who knows? But yeah, so 9-11 happened. And I just remember, like, we're in Fort Bliss, and there's like a deafening silence. It's so quiet. People are so in shock. And we have just realized the gravity of our position, right? what it is that we are called upon to do. And I remember just this crazy sense of what now, like how do we get ourselves from this carefree attitude to now this, you know, this mental framework that is very different. And we felt the weight of it. I'm, I'm certain of it. And I think more so than probably a lot of other you know, jobs, positions in the world, um, or in the United States, especially during that time. Maybe the police officers, of course, were feeling it too, first responders, because of everything that had happened, and and people in the medical fields, but especially in the military, it was just a whole different military situation from that point on, and it changed radically. So I remember the training amped up. I remember we were purchasing stuff. I just, my job, (laughs) I'm learning quickly, right? (laughs) I'm buying a lot. We're packing up our house. We're talking to parents and family members and like, we've got these pets, you know, we've got this place that we're renting in Texas. Can you come and get our pets? And they came and got our pets. And then it was like all these different uh, inoculations or whatever, all these different shots and everything that you know, we had to get, and I remember we signed our last wills. Like we're really just thinking, this is it. When we go over, that's it. We've got it. We've got a mission. So 2003 was when 
I think we were actually recalled Christmas Day because I remember being with my grandma and getting the call. I remember like giving her a hug and then saying goodbye and wondering, you know, will I see her again? I think all of us did that. And then I think there was some sort of accident at the beginning of the year in 2003 with one of the, the missions with in space. So there was like this other crisis that happened. And so I remember all of my friends were over at our house at that time. This is like the holidays. And, and then it was like, okay, we've got to get ready to go to war. So there was so much going on at one time. And I remember just thinking, keep it together and just follow whatever the old, basically the old timers, <laughs> whoever, whoever's done this before, whatever they tell you, just listen to them. Let them be your guide, basically, because I, I had so many questions, but I also didn't know anything about what we were getting ourselves into. So March 2003, so 20 years ago, we're going over to Al Jabber, Al Jabbar, however you want to pronounce it in Kuwait. And my job shifted radically to purchase card holder. So I would travel to Kuwait City. And I would purchase supplies with our vehicles that we had or whatever. We would go into Kuwait City. We'd deal with the Kuwait vendors. And sometimes people would ask for the most random things. Like I think you and I had a conversation beforehand where we were talking about random questions that get asked by people in a supermarket that work there. Well, I would get asked for the most random things. I'm like, you know where I'm going right now. It's not, it's not the store in America, right? I'm going... What you're asking for is kind of impossible to look, but you know. And then also there were the um, third country nationals. And so we're also doing like contract work with them. We're buying bulk supplies, things like that. And then we're delivering the supplies to the unit. And then it was, okay, the talk, the tactical operations center is going to go forward into Iraq. So we need to help prep for that. And, and different units were also going. We're the headquarters and headquarters. I had been trained in field sanitation. I want to say like a year or something before this. And field sanitation is where you're making sure that you have those supplies that are going to help you keep yourself clean, help you with cooking, and keep every, everybody from getting sick. You're, you're learning all about that. And so I had, because, you know, in my mind, if we're going to war, we need to really prep and get all of these supplies and everything. I had planned for every, you know, kind of eventuality or whatever, whatever's going to happen, I had planned for it and had tons of supplies. And all of these units were taking my <laughs> supplies. And I remember getting really ticked off, you know, here's the 20, you know, 20 something year old person going, I'm the one who planned for this. Now you're taking, you're taking it from us. And I remember somebody, you know, having a talk with me and saying, they are us, you know, this is us, right? What you have helps us give it. And then it was like, duh, what was I thinking? All that pride and everything that you have just kind of shifts. And you're like, yes, of course, give it. And I remember also like thinking about uh, boot laces and what if we need these and just, just the, the most, my mind just at that time was fast moving and it was constantly thinking about the what ifs. So a lot of people were taking our stuff, but it was our stuff. And I got that into my, you know, my grill or whatever, into my head, my noggin. And the talk went out. And a couple of weeks later, the ALOC, which was what I was a part of, Administrative Logistics Operations Center, I have it written down so that I could remember because there's no way. 
right? The ALUC, which was what I was a part of, went out. Now, at that point, we didn't have um, any kind of armor on any of our vehicles, right? And we weren't going to have any M MP support. So they took off the the top of our Humvee and they mounted a pole in there, which was meant for my M249. I weighed about 125 pounds at this point and was assigned a machine gun. And we mounted it on my Humvee. That was going to be the lead vehicle with the captain in front and can't think right now, but there was another person off to the right in the vehicle and they had painted numbers on the top of the hood for any kind of like fratricide situation. Did they do that with your vehicles as well? Oh, I had MATVs and MRAP, so it was very different. Yeah, very different situation, right? So they painted the numbers on the hood, like like literally with paint, they're up on the hood, just slopping it on with like a chip brush or whatever, so that any kind of friendly fire that could find its way to our vehicle hopefully wouldn't, because these numbers would be on there. And I remember that being very much a thing in my mind, along with the alarms going off and things like that. And the first time I ever put on my mop suit and my mop gear, and and then the second time I put it on, realizing I don't have my glove. And I remember taking my arm and like tucking it in and like taking my hand that had the glove and doing this kind of number and thinking, wow, you are so not ready for this. But then I felt I felt more ready than some of the people that I, I worked alongside who like basically had, and they were not from our military unit whatsoever. They weren't even in the same branch of the military, but they had their gear in a shopping bag. And I remember thinking, well, you got your stuff more together than that person does. They showed up with like a Macy's bag and they threw their, you know, their Kevlar and everything inside of their, their chin strap. Look at them. They're all ate the heck up. So, you know, I had some confidence, but then, you know, at other times I'd be like, wow, I am completely unprepared to go into Iraq right now. But then there was the part of me that's like, well, you got all dressed up. You might as well do the thing that you came here to do. If you're going to help people and you are going to be there to give supplies, now is the time to do it. This is this is the time. So I remember, okay, we're doing this. And so our convoy was long. My machine gun is on this mount and the distance was crazy long and I remember a sign that said DMZ I remember just being so freaking tired and thinking don't you dare ever fall asleep because you're basically the MP right and my hands were cramping up and I was standing the whole entire time and it was exhausting I was so tired and we still had to put our tent up and when we got there, we were in Talil, Iraq, um, right near the ruins of Ur. Our tent was not far away from where they kept the POWs. And the tent had sandbags around it. And there was like a separator um, for canvas. And the women were on one side. And there was, you know, maybe a handful of us. And then the men were on the other side. And then the ALOC vehicle, which is eventually where we kept a lot of things, was away. And that was it. Once we finally hit that cot I just remember if somebody had come in in the middle of the night I would you know what I mean like I was so tired because I had already done so much at that point more than I thought I was capable of doing at that point with just that that drive in there and then the realization of there are two grenades in your vest right now and you know it's just like one small pin and I've written poetry about it since then and you're the person 
that is going to be the one that's going to have to deal with anything that comes our way. So by the time I hit that cot, if any, if any, if they had needed me at any point after that, you know, I have to hope that I would have been prepared for it. But at that point, I definitely was not. I just remember sleeping. It wouldn't have mattered if there was a sandstorm. And there were eventually. But at that point, I was just out, lights out. And then waking up that next morning and seeing this huge ziggurat right there. I mean, it's so close to where we're at. And then having people say, well, you're not supposed to go over there unless you're part of a group. You're going to have to be part of a group that goes over there. And the chaplain was going to make his way over there. He said that. And so the whole time I'm doing my my job, which is to like deal with trash, I've become now the trash person. Okay. So I went from being the person that deals with the legal aspect of things to the person who's buying things to now the trash person, essentially. Anything with waste, fecal, anything with waste, burning it, whatever, that was my job now. So a completely different situation from what I had dealt with in Kuwait. And I remember the S3 guys, um, because they were all men that worked um, in that shop. They took a, I think it was a 50 gallon drum and they cut off the top. And then we put like a toilet seat on top of it and that became our toilet. And then we burned um, all the waste, this huge stick, and we were like stirring and stuff like that. I remember taking garbage out and I think that there was some contract workers and stuff like that, but I actually had to drive to take our trash to the dump point and there was just huge burn pits or whatever. And I remember reading comics and things like that with the person who was beside me. I'm not going to tell you her name, but she's still one of my dear friends. I still speak to her and still think of her with my memories because of everything that we would deal with as far as trash. And that was not her job by any scope of imagination. (laughs) But she would always go with me because we had our buddy teams or whatever. And I remember her saying to me, we're going to make it to the ruins. We're going to, we're going to go see that ziggurat. And I was like, really? intriguing, right? We're going to get there. And eventually we did. And we actually saw the chaplain there the very day that we went. And I remember when we were leaving, because it was, it was so very impressive um, seeing that and feeling like I am now a part of ancient warrior history. And then my vehicle wouldn't start. (laughs) And I used to call it Midas because (laughs) it felt like you would have the golden touch if you could get it to operate properly. And so the thing wouldn't start for a little while. And I was like, oh, that's going to be my luck. The one time I'm doing something where I shouldn't be here. I haven't asked for permission. I'm just out on a trash run. This is going to be the time when my vehicle doesn't operate. But it did. And so we made it back. And so that's one of my funny stories, but slash also very serious and impactful moments because of the gravity of where we're at. Um, And then just seeing the things that we were able to see and doing the kinds of things that we were able to do over there. And then, you know, thinking back to you were showering, you know, with a ply, it was basically a plywood shower and helicopters are flying overhead and you're just, you know, with this thing, putting it, the water over your head with water in, out of a bag, basically, and you're showering and then there's helicopters overhead. So just completely uh, a lot like camping in the one sense, but not like camping at all. right? So, yeah, that was my um, field sanitation sergeant 
experience at war. It's just so fascinating to hear like how like the start, because I think by the time I got to Afghanistan in 2010, we had MRAPs and it wasn't until I did the podcast and I was like, what? You guys drove around in Humvees? Like, that's what we trained in. But I didn't realize that's what people actually like drove around with without any like armor. And like, it was just like crazy to me because I had no idea because my frame of reference was by the time we went overseas to Iraq and Afghanistan, we had these great big trucks. And then, no, that was totally wrong. And so it's been really fascinating to hear like what it was like and I mean from the logistics side you talked about like sanitation supplies like there's so much that logistics had to do and you couldn't do the mission without all that stuff and so it's crazy to like hear your side of it and hear about like all the things that you guys were doing to prepare to the for the invasion and then actually going in and and then like women aren't allowed in combat but you're manning the gun at the front of the convoy it's like it's just so crazy because it's like people in congress and like in the United, women can't be it but it's like apparently they were like she can do it and they didn't think twice about your gender they just were like she's gonna do it it's kind of interesting how like there's like these unconscious biases that people have and then when you're actually in the thick of it it's like you're a person here you go. and like that was my experience in the military was like you're a person we need you to do this job go do it and no one cared about gender and it was all about like you know the political aspect of like can a woman do this thing and it's like well they didn't care when I was over there if I could do it they just were like you're a body go and so it's kind of it's really interesting just to hear like the history and the dynamics of your experience it was interesting for me too to even recall it like as I was thinking about this podcast um, putting it together in my mind and going okay I've written so much about it but kind of skirting around the edges not really chronologically because that's not how memory works memory works by smell that you have it works by a song that you hear it works by seeing a face that you haven't seen in a while and it triggers something it works in completely different ways than chronologically and so here I have to think about it chronologically because that way it's going to make sense to the listener hopefully but like you saw, like it, 20 years can be just yesterday or it can be, you know, you know what I mean? Like, it's so weird how our minds navigate that space. I was at the VA a couple of weeks ago for um, my dermatology appointment and we were all sitting there waiting for our name to be called and the news was on, which I don't really watch the news. And they were talking about like what was going on in Gaza. And one of the veterans, he was like, not again and it was weird because you could hear the whole room even though we like hadn't talked you could like feel the like and and especially inside of me like I hadn't felt that like fear and that you know like when I was about to go overseas and just think about like how a whole generation could be affected if we go to war and just like I don't it was like such a weird feeling and I had never thought about it but then that moment when he said those words I was like oh my gosh this is scary like for the next generation and like what's going to happen. And I feel like the military right now is so tired because the war in Afghanistan just barely ended and we haven't recovered from what, what was required, the sacrifice and like we're struggling to get people to join and 
you know, there's all these things that are going on. And I'm like, I, I don't think we can do it. And that was the other, like, kind of scary thing because I was it was just like that feeling and like it wasn't like 9-11 where everyone was like overwhelmed with patriotism it was more like dread and fear of like what's to come I kind of wonder if that has to do with with our age that we're at now I kind of wonder if we could get a perspective from a person that's younger what their thoughts on it would be because I know the person I am now is obviously very different from the gung-ho 20-something year old person but I do know what you mean about that sense of dread because I felt that in 2020 when things were going on in, in Wuhan China I was like okay we need to get supplies with Anna that's my husband we need to prep this house and I remember having what I didn't know at the time was a panic attack and we need to go get toilet paper because I knew from war, my experiences with toilet paper, I even wrote about it, the toilet paper wars. I mean, I've spent so much time thinking about toilet paper in my life. It's incredible <laughs> but because of the situations over there. I remember we created, like I said, this toilet. We used plywood and everything. We had the drum. We had an actual toilet seat on it. So we were pretty posh for the des you know, for the desert or whatever. There were people because there was a gap from the door frame to the top frame there was a little gap people were jumping over getting through the hole that was created by the frame of the door to the frame of the top of the structure that we created to get into our toilet because there wasn't one when we had it locked because obviously if I'm going to be out there stirring all of this stuff I don't want to stir everybody's stuff that's out there into little Iraq. Like I really, I don't know you for some reason stirring my own people's, you know, and again, it goes back to the whole supply idea. We all need this. We all are using this. We are the me, you know, we're, we're all together. Right. But I remember even then thinking if that's what it was like in Iraq, imagine what it's going to be like for an entire country that for the most part has been pretty spoiled when it comes to everything we commodity wise we get everything that we need and we get it fast and we don't think about the aftermath of it we just get it and we use it and and that's it and so i remember um when that happened in 2020 just feeling this sense of dread my husband and i went out for it was supposed to be a pretty easy jog and i collapsed to the ground and i ended up going into the er and they gave me all kinds of fluids. They tried to help with this massive migraine that I had. I thought I was having a stroke. And so that would be my first instance of like an ER visit where I'm like, what is going on with me? This is not the person that, you know, yesterday I was perfectly healthy. And now today, what's going on with me? So I do think those are triggers. And I do think that's why it is important to go to the VA. It's very important to find those outlets, which I've tried to do throughout um, the entire cycle. And that that was because of a mental health crisis. Um, when we got back in 2004, I remember I was in the backyard, I was on a hammock and I heard like a fire truck or something going by and I reached for my pro mask. Like I just reached for it, like instinctly, you know, like I need this. And then I'm like, what are you doing? You know? And, and then from that point on being very cognizant of my mental health, because just that fast, I'm back over there. And so I went to talk to somebody um, at the VA and they said, you know what? You're not doing a really great job of communicating with me, but you've told me that you like to write. 
And if you like to write, that's how you should get everything out. That's going to be your, you know, your way to get the words out onto the page and then be able to think about it in a really safe space. And that, whoever that person was, I hope you're listening because that's probably why I'm here. Just being able to do that changed everything for me because I wasn't able to talk about things. And then all of a sudden it was like, now I have a way to do it. I like to write poetry. I like to work with art. I've done that my entire life. I've worked with my hands. And anytime I was having a bad time, my mom would hand me a paintbrush and say, this is how you work it out. You go to work and you you create things. And so that had always stuck with me. But yeah, you're right. We, we can go back there in a second and... And I do think it's impactful what happened to us. And we should talk about it now 20 years later, because there's probably something in all of our rambling where somebody, you know, that's young, like 20 something, right? And they're going, oh, wow, I never, you know, maybe that will help them. Because I tell you, when I was going over there, my eye, like saucers, my eyeballs were like saucers. And I went straight to the oldest people that I could find in the military. And I was like, what do I do? What do, how do I prepare for this? And so, and they gave me a lot of really great things to think about. So I guess when we're thinking about Gaza or thinking about anything going on in the world, Ukraine, and we're just thinking about the state of the world as it's always, it feels like on the precipice now, especially lately, uh, I would say what, since 2010, especially, but maybe from 2020 on, like our whole way of thinking has, it's like a paradigm shift, right? So that would probably be the most important thing is just to tell a person that's younger, hey, the best way to move forward is to talk to people who are a little bit older and to ground yourself and center yourself, have a plan and don't get so locked into dread that you can't function because it's it's an easy path to go down if you let yourself. And that's kind of, I guess, the scariest part for me to think about 20 years on and how many people we have lost and how much work we've done to make sure we have these things like 988, you know, a phone number that isn't a 1-800 number that nobody remembers. Well, I think it was 1-800-251-TALK, right? And the reason I remember that is because I made a poem about saying how ridiculous it is to try to, when you're in a mental health crisis, think about this long number that you're never going to remember. So the mental health part of it is definitely important. And then just going, well, we did, we did get back. And yeah, some of us didn't. And they gave us some really, you know, some awards like a presidential unit award, things like that. And you go, well, thanks for this. Some people got them more impressive awards, whatever. But at the end of it, we still have to deal with the other parts of it, right? Our health, which if it's broken, it needs to get fixed. So how do you do that? And I feel like that's what we're charged with in our generations to help us all get fixed. And so that when these kind of situations, as they're going to, as we see, things aren't changing. When things happen politically, we know how to do things better. And I think like it makes me happy to hear there were armored vehicles. And I knew, you know, a lot of veterans were fighting a lot harder than even I was on different things. I'm thinking about mental health and coping mechanisms and they're thinking about how do we keep troops safe and how do we show that yes women definitely have always been helping and aiding and fighting in these different conflicts so I feel like that's probably the charge for us is to think about that but yeah I went over and then we got back in 
in 2003 at the end of it. And by 2004, it was already time for me to get out. And we had talked about being parents. And, and I was like, how is that going to work? How is that going to work? So I got out. He dropped his warrant officer packet for stuff that he had been doing um, in the military during war. And he actually became like a logistics mobility warrant officer. And what we thought was going to be a 20-year term turned into like now he's on his 28th year and he's a unicorn and he's a CW5 and all of these other things have happened. We have traveled the world. My ETS was in 2004. 2005, we're in Georgia at Fort McPherson. He's on his second deployment. Virginia, 2006, 2010. He's on his third deployment. I'm working on my bachelor's degree at this point. We get to Heidelberg, then the BRAC, which was like the base realignment and closure happened. So lucky me, I end up not only getting to go to Heidelberg, but then I get to go to Wiesbaden, which, okay, now he's on his fourth deployment and I'm working on my master's degree. And at the time I thought, there's no way I'm going to be able to concentrate on this but it turned out to be very helpful because I didn't know a lot of my neighbors. I didn't speak the language and my husband is gone for 15 months and I had paperwork all over the house and I didn't have to worry, you know, about anything. I ate when I wanted to. I woke up. My schedule was so wonky anyway, because I'm thinking about his, you know, what time is it where he's at and is he going to call? And if he calls, am I going to, you know, I want to make sure that I get the call. And so yeah, that was the fourth deployment. He came back um, and then we moved to Hawaii. And the first time we were in Hawaii, which I'm in Hawaii now, so this is my second time in Hawaii. First time we were in Hawaii, it was such a huge, another huge culture change that it took me about six months, imagine that, to get used to Hawaii. Imagine being in such a weird mental state because of everything that you've gone through when your spouse has gone through, that it takes you a while to get used to paradise, right? But I did, got used to the slower path of life and started thinking even more about writing my experiences and, and all of that. So I was writing to the Veterans Writing Project at that time, and they were publishing some of my stuff. And um, there was a person that worked for the VA at the time, his name was Fred Foote. He still think he might be retired, but Jerry Bell, Fred Foote, Ron Caps, um, Dario Batista, all of these people that I met through the Veterans Writing Project, I ended up meeting Kayla Williams, and I met Kelly Kennedy through Kayla. There were just lots of things that happened um, because of the writing portion of it. And this psychiatrist from 2004, now talking to the person that's in Hawaii, 2000 past. I don't even know what year it is at this point. She's she's telling me, write stuff down and I'm listening and it's getting published and it's making me build a friendship and build connections and get healthy. Um, so being in Hawaii was very helpful for my mental health. We got back to Virginia. Now my husband's teaching at the Army Logistics University and we're doing the whole senior warrant officer and his spouse thing. I'm going attending balls. I work at the battlefield as like a park ranger and I'm taking people on tours to learn about Civil War battlefield stuff. And I'm getting more interested in our history as women, as women warriors. And I'm learning so much about everything that we have done throughout the history of our country. And I'm so incredibly proud and also 
I feel obligated to tell people those stories and to be that storyteller. I write this really nice poem, A Lifetime of War in 250 Words. I can't even tell you if it was 250 words. It probably wasn't. I submit it because one of my friends, Jerry Bell, um, from the Veterans Writing Project says, you should submit this, Max. You should just try. And I did. And got me a trip to Oxford. And I went over there in 2020, right before the pandemic. And I tell you this because it was literally the day before all the airlines shut everything down. And if I had been delayed at all, I would have been stuck in Oxford. Oh, poor me. But still, like, it would have been weird, right, to be over there for over, you know, a year probably. Came back from that experience completely changed again and feeling like, I have so much more even now that I want to do. And this is just the beginning. Like it's taken me this long, but I am in a place where I want to write about this stuff. And I want to tell people everything that we've gone through and tell them why this matters, why storytelling matters and why all of this is important for us. So came back in 2020 changed. Of course, then we all changed again. Like I said, a paradigm shift from 9-11 to then the 2020 coming out of that and just feeling like, all right, now what do I do? How do I do the goal I have, which is to lead a purpose-driven life? Because this entire time I've talked about having a family, it didn't ever pan out. We had miscarriages. We had all of these different, how do you make a child through Skype? You know, how do you do that? Right? <laughs> so, so that it was, yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, there's other things you can do, but yeah, to actually make the physical uh, child. Yeah. So Virginia, now we're back in Hawaii and I work as a military education coordinator. I work in six different installations. I help military people and veterans get into college. I help them with uh, the processes of all that, help them with financial aid if I can, just get them the answers that they need. And so that feels like a very important thing to do. Um, And I'm happy to be working and making a paycheck, which is also very important because there were plenty of times that I heard from different employers. We know your husband's in the military. I mean, my whole life is on the internet. As we said, it's the big dumping ground of, you know, the world. So they could see that I'm going to be leaving soon. And so I had to find the right culture fit where they go, we appreciate that of you. We appreciate that you have all these life experiences and that you are going to be moving to another location. And we're willing to train you because we have locations all throughout the country and all throughout the world, frankly. So it was finding that great culture fit and and then also just thinking about what else beyond my job and my art can I do? So most recently, um, I've been doing a lot of partnerships with the Office of Health Equity with the VA, which has been wonderful. There's some artwork that's at the gallery. We're talking about making more um, online galleries um, and maybe even a physical space in the future. And then just other things that we have planned and lined up. And I just feel like that is such a wonderful way to think about life rather than going, what have I lost or what is damaged about me? Thinking instead, how can I move beyond that damage and think of it more as kintsugi, right? 
that that part of pottery where you fill it in the gold with the gold cracks you fill it in with the gold paint and that's how i've tried to think about things moving forward and think more optimistically and i got to tell you part of that a large part of that is because people in art and people in the veteran space there was a wonderful group uniting us that i'm a part of and they just said okay use your art and we'll help you get it shown and they have done that for me and they're a wonderful group of people. And so even though I went through a lot of really bad fitting groups, you know, like groups where I, I don't like to run. Why am I in this running group? You know, that's great that they love to, but I don't enjoy it. <laughs> I enjoy a hike. I enjoy being out with animals. I love my dogs, things like that. You have to find out what you're, what you're good at and what group you belong with. The isolation can be very important for the writing part of your life, but you can't let it gobble you up and stay in that isolated place. Um, I really feel like that's a damaging place to be in. So as I'm thinking about how do we as a generation of women warriors help this next generation, that's my best advice. Art, writing, and finding the group that you connect with because they're going to be the ones that take you out of a dark space that help you instead of having a triggering memory go well what did you learn from that and how are you better off from that or yeah that really sucked and i'm here with you <laughs> i get it i know why you're being quiet right now because this news is happening and it's really shocking and it's making you think about some things but they're going to be there for you it's like a brother and a sisterhood and so that way you can move forward Thank you so much for sharing your story and for being so open about your your mental health and like finding community. I think it is so important that we don't do things alone. But I wanted to I want to end the interview with what advice would you give to a young woman who's considering joining the military? Know what your values are. Um, for me, being in a country where women used to have equal rights, it was very important to me. I had autonomy over my body. I grew up with sci-fi and Star Trek ideas and space realities during the Reagan era, uh, era, and I watched the wall come down. And I had all of these thoughts that we would have a woman president, and now I'm almost 50, and I wonder if that will ever happen. So you need to know what you're fighting for. You need to vote. And you need to put yourself on the line. So if you're going to do that via the military, then keep your values close to you. You know, I, for me, it was always, I want women in this country, in any country, to be able to go to school. I rode a motorcycle to school. I felt like a, you know, a bad A, right? I could just, you know, do whatever I wanted to do. I could speak my mind and I grew up with like Sigourney Weaver as my heroine and, and Linda Hamilton and all of these really tough chicks and, and women that were just role models. And so I want this next generation to really think about what makes a good role model and what do you see our future being? If it's being subservient or, or being somebody that has to be second caliber to some gender or to some idea, then okay, that's your that's your thought, but that's definitely not mine. And I hope that you can just kind of look at throughout our history, what we have had as women is really important, tough women. And I would like to see more of that. I would like to see women moving forward in really important positions and not letting anything hold them back because nothing did when I was young. Nothing did. 
And I think it's only when we're fearful that we allow it to stop us. That's such great advice. I really, I really appreciate you sharing your story, sharing about your experience. It was fascinating to hear about your time in Iraq and just to hearing what happened after you got out of the military. We could talk longer, but we're out of time. So thank you so much for sharing your story and for being a guest. I really, really appreciate it. I really appreciate it too, Amanda. You're doing great things.